Welcome to Grace Live, everybody. Thank you for participating in this service today. Another great life hack video, which is all about relationships, which we need to keep together right now. We need our relationships to be strong. So thank you so much, team, for putting that uh, together. All right, today we want to talk about how to motivate people to change. How do you motivate change anyway? I mean, at some point in your life, you're going to want to motivate somebody to change. Could be a neighbor, could be a friend or a family member, could be a Republican or a Democrat, could be your spouse. Or you might want to just go back to the Republican or Democrat. What I mean by spouse is not that you're going to get a new spouse, but uh, that you'll change something about your spouse. How do you motivate people to change Christ's way? This is what we're talking about today. Now, this is what social scientists tell us. Here is what the data from the social scientists are showing us. It's really important. Nagging doesn't work. Now, I must pause right there so you can call into the room, whoever you need to get in the room, and I'm going to say it again, so go ahead and call them or get on your phone and say, hey, tune on Grace Live real quick. Didn't know you saw about this today. Okay, so I'm just kind of rambling for a second for you to do that. All right, here we go. Uh, now, hopefully they're in the room. All right, ready? Nagging doesn't work. Guilting people doesn't work. Actually, threatening people, that doesn't work. You can't impose genuine heart change on other people. You can't impose your agenda. You can't force change on anybody. I know we talk a lot about intervention, confrontation. We're going to have an intervention with somebody say, hey, this has got to change. Actually, the data shows us that when we do that, we drive the problem deeper in the person, which is exactly what we don't want to do. We don't want to drive it deeper. You can't force that change. What does cause change? Now, this is where Jesus and his way, oh my gosh, it really, really works. There's a scene in the life of Jesus Christ. He's headed with his disciples. They're getting near a village. Uh, they send word ahead, hey, Jesus is coming. And the village sends back, we don't want Jesus to come. We don't want Jesus here. And his disciples say to him, Master, shall we call fire down out of heaven? In other words, their view of things, which wasn't Christ's view, is let's just light them up. They're not doing what we want them to do. Let's light them up. Now, we often choose that way. Places of work sometimes. How am I going to light a fire in people without firing people? Right? How do I not get to that point? with people. Christ has a different way. How about this one? Uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Very important point. And James and John, two of Jesus's closest disciples, their mother, very embarrassing, their mother comes to Jesus. Hey, can my son sit on your right and left in the kingdom? And Jesus is like, time out. He says, fellas, everybody gather around, gather around. You know how the rulers in this world, they force change on people? Like might makes right, they force things. We're not going to do things that way. So here's what the social scientists tell us, because I already told you that if you confront or try to force impose your agenda, it doesn't work. It actually drives things deeper. How does it work? This is what they tell us. You need to help people discover what they want. That's exactly what Jesus did. You need to help people discover what they want. Now that's deep, and we're going to make some some comments about that in just a minute. But this is what they say we need to do. We need to replace judgment with empathy. We need to replace lectures with questions. We need to replace dictates with dialogue. That's all Jesus. No more lectures, lots of questions. I mean, we're kind of used to a brand of spirituality a lot of times is just boom, boom, boom. 
Jesus didn't do that. Jesus asked more than 300 questions in the Gospels. He questioned, why? Because he wasn't after false, forced change, but genuine heart change. This is the way genuine heart change happens. This is what the social scientists tell This is brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. How to motivate change for ourselves and for others, Christ's way. John chapter 7 is where we have made it to this week, verses 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, stop, let's pause, last at what festival? This is the festival of tabernacles, right? We talked about it last week. They would go camping, basically, outside of Jerusalem, remembering remembering when they were in tents in the wilderness. Every single day, there'd be a water celebration because they needed water in the desert. This is the last day. This is the only day that they don't have this water festival for seven days they have. Jesus stands up. What does he say in a loud voice? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Remember everybody, we keep talking about this. We got to see this through ancient Jewish eyes. I I see it through my um, Northern Virginia 2020 eyes. I don't really understand what's going on. I see it through their eyes. I understand. What is Jesus saying? Well, we've been saying this. We've all been created in the image of God. We're all mirrors. And he says, bring your mirror in front of me. Bring your mirror to me. Because what you really want to do is reflect me. And when you do that, just like water in the desert, water quenches quenches the thirst. You want life. You want that quenching for that life that you really wanted. You want If you come in front of me and really reflect me, it's going to fill that deep thirst that you have. Purpose, peace, power, joy. All of these things are going to be quenched. That's what water symbolizes. We, every single one of us are a mirror creating the image of God. And when we bring our mirror in front of Jesus and reflect him, then we can truly live. This is who we are. So he stands up the last day of the feast. You're still thirsty? Of course you are. You're always going to be thirsty until you realize that you were called to reflect me. Now, here's the way David says it in Psalm 17. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. What are the values of the kingdom of Christ? What is it about Jesus and the reflecting of Jesus that deeply resonates with us? And we just say, once we get around it and we understand it, I just got to have more. Well, Jesus makes it really clear. Matthew chapter five, it's called the Beatitudes. Goes up on a mountain and he says, here's the values of my kingdom. Let me just sum up a couple of them for you and ask you, don't these resonate deeply with you? He says, if somebody's hungry, they should be fed. I'm like, yeah, that's good. I like that. If somebody's mourning, they should be comforted. Yes, yes, I like that too, right? Uh, somebody who's a peacemaker should be celebrated. Good, yep. Uh, those who need justice should receive justice. Yes! Those resonate deeply. Why? Why do they resonate so deeply with us? Because we share the DNA with Jesus. Now, there's a lot of talk about DNA today. Doing ancestry tests and all that kind of stuff. Do you realize that you share the DNA of Jesus? That the deepest place within you comes from Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says to us in Romans 11. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. We came from Jesus to live for Jesus. We will return back to Jesus. Your DNA is Jesus Christ. Don't be confused about that. 
Your deepest DNA comes from Jesus Christ. I prayed for my kids from the time they were born that they would see themselves through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, I love my kids. I want them to see themselves through my eyes, but I'm imperfect. And the deepest part of their DNA, they're mirrors, they're images of God. That's what they've been called to be. So I want them to see themselves through the eyes of Christ because if they get that right, they'll find true joy for living. That's what we really want. So then you got to say, well, why is there all this nagging and threatening and guilting going on in this world? Because we are confused. Our eyes are bad. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is going to be filled with light. Matthew McConaughey, the uh, movie star, he's got that tattooed on him somewhere, right? Eyes of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is good. What, are your eyes okay? Luke 4, Jesus starts his whole ministry by standing up in the synagogue of Nazareth. Says, I've come to open blind eyes. Why? What's the big deal? With blind eyes. I mean, all kinds of other things. It's a metaphor for how you see yourself and how you see the world, how you see other people. Are you seeing yourself the right way? If the eye is messed up, everything's going to be messed up. Okay. Look, um, I work for UPS, work for UPS in Arlington. Arlington County is the smallest county in America, the smartest county in America and has the most ridiculous street plan in America. And when I work for UPS, people come to me all the time and says, man, I can't figure out where I am. I'm like, well, you know, we're in North Arlington. You need to be all the way down in South. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. But there's a few things about the framework of the streets in Arlington that we just need to understand. Route 50 runs right down the middle. It separates North and South. If you have a zip code that ends in an even number, you know you need to be in South. If you have one end in an odd number, you know you need to be up in the North. There are a few things about the framework we need to understand. That same thing is true with the Bible. There's some things about the framework of the Bible we just got to understand or it's going to frustrate us. Genesis chapter 1, they're created in the image of God. You, I, we, every single person created in the very image of God. They're happy. God says it's very good. They're walking around the garden. All they're doing is reflecting. You get to Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Their eyes go bad. They saw, they saw the tree. The knowledge of good and evil means you, it means they experienced evil. They experienced sin and shame. Their eyes were open, we're told. And now they had an identity theft. And now they had an understanding that they weren't created in the image of God. They were created in the image of themselves. So by the time you get to Genesis chapter five and Adam and Eve have a son and they name him Seth, it says these really important words. Seth was born in the image and the likeness of Adam and Eve. He wasn't. Identity theft took place. And you know what? Everything went south from there. Because when we think that we're created in the image of Adam and Eve, when, when we've been deceived to that point, all hell breaks loose. Things just go bad. And that was a terrible, fear-filled world to live in. It was Darwin, totally. Might makes right, only the strong survive natural selection. I mean, it was a world that you would not want to be in. And that world changed radically with Jesus Christ because he healed people's eyes. Why is there so much talk in the Bible, everybody, about death and about being reborn? I mean, why does Paul say, I want to be crucified or I was crucified with Jesus Christ? Why do I, why do I want that? Why does Jesus say, you got to lose your life? 
Why does Jesus say you got to take up your cross? What exactly is it that needs to die and be born again? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 12, and this is really important, we're going to eventually get into John chapter 12 because we're going to go all the way through the gospel of John. But in John chapter 12, Jesus says something really important. He says, unless a kernel of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. What's that mean? Here's what it means. Unless a kernel of wheat is willing to give up its false identity in order to become its true identity, it will not experience everything that God has created it to be. Are you willing to give up your false identity that you were created in somebody else's image out there? I don't care who. Are you willing to let that go and say, you know what? My DNA, my identity is in Jesus Christ. That's where I'm going to find my deepest fulfillment. That's what I long Long, it's like a caterpillar. It's got to give up its identity as a caterpillar in order to become a butterfly. Now, I want to I'll read you a quote from St. Irenaeus, okay? And he, 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 here's why Irenaeus is so important. Because you got John, the writer of this gospel, and he knew a guy named Polycarp, an early church father, okay? John dies, Polycarp's alive, and at the end of Polycarp's life, he, he gets to know uh, St. Irenaeus, okay? And so that gives us a direct connection, to what were they thinking? What was it that Jesus Christ had impressed upon them? What had their eyes opened to? This is what he says. Jesus Christ in his infinite love has become what we are in order that he may make us entirely what he is. They saw themselves and they saw the world around them in a brand new way. He goes on to say this, the church has been planted as a paradise in the world. God told Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to take what's going on in this garden, and I want you to be image bearers of that to the entire world. The entire world is created in the image of God, and I want you to reflect that out into the entire world, and that's going to change the world. Well, they didn't do that, so Jesus Christ had to come, and he had to clear things up and say, hey, hey, this is what you're supposed to reflect, and this is where you're going to find the truest joy and deepest satisfaction. This is where you're going to find peace, power, and purpose. Life is going to be awesome, and that is why the values of the kingdom of Jesus Christ resonate so deep and powerfully within us. Baptism. You know, growing up, we used to argue about how to be baptized. You know, sprinkle, immersion, which one is it? But that's the wrong, that's the wrong discussion. The real discussion is why be baptized? What does it actually represent? What's the metaphor of baptism? The metaphor is you go down in the water and you come up a brand new person with a brand new identity. You think about the Israelites they're in Egypt as slaves and God sets them free and they get to the Red Sea and then Pharaoh says, you know what? I've changed my mind and I'm coming with my whole army because I want to keep you enslaved. And they cry out to God and Moses says, but water's part. And they go through the waters and they come up the other side with a brand new identity because their oppressors who held their identity as slaves were all drowned in the water. That's what the metaphor is. That's what it is. Are you willing to let go of your old identity and take on a new identity in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do that? Because once you see yourself through his eyes, you'll be able to see the entire world through God's eyes. One other story from Moses. I think it's really important. They get you know, to the other side and lo and behold, Moses goes on the mountain. He receives the 10 commandments, the people down below for 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, they just, they just, they just go crazy. They start worshiping this golden calf and all kinds of terrible things take place. God says, you better go back down there. So he does. And God's mad. And Moses is mad. Everybody's mad. And, and God says to Moses, testing Moses, to Moses, Moses say, get out of my way. 
I'm going to get rid of your people. Moses, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that because these are your people. What a bold statement. What an insightful statement for Moses. Now, Moses is upset with the people too. He could have just said, yeah, get rid of them, tire them. God says, I'll make a great people out of you. Moses, no, 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 no. There's not, uh-uh, uh-uh. Even though they're rebellious, they share your DNA, God. That's the truth. And God says, you got it. You got it. You got it right, Moses. You saw it. They shared God's DNA. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how you're living or what you're doing. You share the DNA of Jesus Christ, regardless of what you're doing. Deep down inside of you, no matter what you're doing, what you really want to do is you want to reflect Jesus Christ. Moses, he got it. Jesus, we talk about Jesus. You know, Jesus would hang out with all kinds of people and the religious leaders would say, what are you doing hanging out with those sinners? If you were really from God, you would know you shouldn't be with them. Now, I used to look at Jesus and say, well, you know, he was kind of rebellious that way. That was cool. I kind of like that. But I don't really think he's being rebellious. I think the reason Jesus hung out with everybody is he saw the whole world the same way. We're all mirrors. All he saw was mirrors everywhere. He didn't see one single person who wasn't a mirror. He saw every person with the incredible to talk so much about this next week, everybody. But he saw every single person with tremendous potential and a desire deep within them. It just needed to come out. They just needed to get in front of Jesus. And all of a sudden, they would realize, oh my gosh, this is what I want. He saw every single person as a mirror for him. Just like Romans 11 says, we've come from God to live for God and we'll return to him. We share DNA with God. Now, there's a school in Georgia I think this is a fantastic story. Lady by the name of Molly Howard applied to become the principal of that school. Now, this school, 80% of the kids lived in poverty. Only 15% of those kids went to college. This school was not doing well. How in the world? She wanted to turn that school around. How in the world was she going to do it? She said, these kids need a whole new identity. Even the teachers, like they said, well, we're not going to spend any time on these kids. We know they're, we're not going to make it. We're just going to spend our time on the very few kids who we know are going to go to college. She said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Every kid did college bound here. We're going to change the identity of every kid. So she did something incredibly radical. She changed the grading system, A, B, C, and NY. You know what NY stands for? Not yet. She wanted to communicate to kids, if you turned in some work, that was below a C. She said, I believe in you. You could do much better. It's not yet. Keep working on it. She changed the whole identity. Now, this is her words, not my words. She says, this school was reborn. How is it reborn? With a brand new identity. How are you born again in Jesus Christ? With a brand new identity. Not in Adam, but in Jesus. You share DNA with Jesus Christ. Their test scores at this school was straight up. Graduation, straight up. Kids going to college, straight up. And out of 48,000 people who applied to be the number one principal in America, Molly Howard was chosen as the number one principal in the United States of America. Everybody, here's what's really important. Once I see my life through the eyes of God, I can see your life through the eyes of God. And that totally changes the way I go about trying to motivate you. Jesus saw mirrors, mirrors everywhere. Now, Jesus Christ, he ascends to heaven and he says, you know, I'm giving all authority to you his disciples, to go out and to be reflectors of him. How in the world do disciples, given the fact the religious leaders were throwing them out of the temple, given the fact that the most powerful force on the face of the earth, the Roman, the power of Rome, had set its sights on the Christian movement, says, we, we don't want any part of this, we're gonna stamp this thing out. How in the world did this Christian movement rise up and actually take over Rome? In the Colosseum today, there's a huge cross in the same place where Christians used to be killed. How did that happen? Because the disciples 
their eyes were healed. They saw themselves and they saw everybody different. They saw mirrors everywhere. And they sought to motivate them to change them. This this went to people and said, this is what you truly want. Rather than saying, you've got to do this. Rather than saying, fear more. You know, fear more is Adam's way of doing things. The most popular phrase in the Bible is fear not. That's Christ's way of doing things. And they went and they saw mirrors everywhere. They said, you want to, deep inside of you, you want to reflect Jesus Christ. Now, Philippians chapter two, which we're basing, Pastor Parker's about ready to talk about this in just a second. We're going to do a new community group study. It's going to be awesome. It's based on the book of Philippians, only four chapters. And I want to talk briefly about chapter two. It says everybody should have the mind of Christ. We need to help each other in a group have the mind of Christ. But at the end of this, where it says in Philippians 2, have the mind of Christ, it says that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I used to think, yeah, one day, by the force of power, God's going to force everybody at sword point, so to speak, to do that. No, no, it's not what's going to happen. It's not what's going to happen because Jesus has already told us he doesn't function that way. He doesn't force people to shame. That's false. That's false, fake change. It doesn't happen that way. It's not genuine. What Christ helps us to discover is who we truly are and what we truly want. And that is, is all of us desire because we share DNA. We've come from God. We're to live for God and we will return back to God is we desire in our deepest part inside of us to actually give glory to Jesus Christ. We're all going to discover that one day. Why can't that one day be right now? Why can't we start living a full, satisfied life, a life of peace and power by reflecting the values of Jesus Christ to the world? That's the way to go. And once we do that, once we see our life that way, we'll start motivating other people to live that way as well. I said a few weeks ago, everybody, the number one content in America being consumed was Tiger King. You know what it is today? All that's ended. Tiger King is over. It's now the last dance. And I say yes, because I love basketball. I think it is awesome. And the 1990s Bulls, oh my gosh, if you could have gone to a game in Chicago in the 19, in the 1990s with the Chicago Bulls, would it get any better than that? That place was on fire. And here's the thing. You'll see that. I'm sure you're watching The Last Dance. You know that Michael Jordan, his coach was Doug Collins. And Doug Collins, his, his idea, his strategy was put the ball in Michael's hands and everybody get out of the way. Well, Phil Jackson, they never won a championship with Doug Collins, right? They won six with Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson says, no, no, we're not going to do it. We'll take the ball out of your hands, Michael. And Michael didn't like that. And Collins and, and, and Jackson's Phil, uh, Phil Jackson says, look, look, just trust me. Trust me, Michael. You want to win a championship? I want to win a championship. Here's how we're going to win the championship. And both of them wanted the exact same thing. Listen, you want the exact same thing that Jesus wants for you. He wants you to experience abundant life, fulfilled life, a satisfied life. He doesn't want to take something away from you or impose something upon you. He wants you to be full on life. Just trust him. Start reflecting him. I know some people have come along and brought misunderstanding and thrown a bunch of stuff on your mirror to confuse that. But my goodness, if you'll dig down deep and you understand who Jesus is, you will realize that you really want to reflect him. Trust him. I want to end with this story. It's about a writer by the name of Amy Sutherland. And she was given an assignment to write about animal trainers. Now, here's the deal going into this story, her own personal life. Here's what was going on. She was miserable. She wasn't going to get a divorce, but she was miserable because her husband was doing a lot of stuff that she didn't like. Leave dirty clothes all over the place, smelling the place up, hover over top of her in the kitchen when, when she was cooking. He would drive too fast. He was always late and she wasn't going to get a divorce, like I said, but she was frustrated. She's that, well, I guess this is just the way it is. So she's on this assignment about animal trainers and she realized she's looking at a monkey who's riding a skateboard. 
And said, how in the world did you get that monkey to ride a skateboard all over the place? How did you get that to happen? Well, you know what? It starts with very, very small steps. Animal trainer puts a skateboard inside the monkey's cage. And if the monkey doesn't freak out, the monkey gets a mango. If when the animal trainer puts it in the cage, the monkey's willing to touch the skateboard, the monkey gets a mango. Every little tiny step along the way, you're feeding that monkey a mango over and over and over again until eventually that monkey's riding a skateboard through a half pipe and a light went off in her head. Oh my goodness, could I try this on my husband? She saw all kinds of powerful things take place. She saw out in California, this trainer who lined up six elephants, could line them up in a straight line and on his command would make all of them urinate at one time. Now that's power. How did the trainer get all that power? Because the trainers do something called approximations. What you do is, is every little step along the way, you praise it and you keep praising it and you keep reinforcing it and you over and over and over again, you lift up, you lift them up. What do they want? They want the mango. They want the, they want the reward. How do we motivate people for change? is we let them know this is what you truly want. This is what's going to bring you true joy. And so you question like Jesus did. And you help people discover that you don't nag, threaten, or guilt. That's Adam's way of doing things. Jesus asks questions. What do you really want? What are you really looking for? And so Amy Sutherland, she ends up writing this uh, article. Here's the title of the article, What Shamu Taught Me About a Happy Marriage. It became the New York Times number one email article of all time. And I think she wrote a book based on that same thing, if you want to check that out. Why am I saying all this? Everybody, not until you see yourself through the eyes of God, then you can see other people through the eyes of God. You realize you're surrounded by people who are mirrors who want to reflect God. And then with that mindset, you go to them and you help them discover what they truly want to discover is they want to reflect Christ. They actually want to do Christ-like things. We help people discover. We don't force that upon people. Don't do that. It doesn't work. It drives the problem deeper. You Instead, you have to gain the eyes of Christ. You've got to have your eyes healed so that you can see other people the same way. Until that happens, we are never going to motivate people Christ's way. But man, once you do, life is going to be really awesome. Now, we're going to end this series next week with John 8, verse number 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And we're going to end, man, we're going to end on a kaboom. I mean, this is going to be awesome. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that culture eats strategy for breakfast. This is what Christ brings to us. Today, I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray for all of us to have the eyes of Jesus Christ, to see ourselves, to know that we share his DNA and that we would motivate all the people that we come in contact with the world. We'd see them as mirrors for God and we would help them experience what they really want in Christ. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we share the DNA of Jesus. Thank you, God, that you have created us in your image and our true joy and satisfaction comes when we reflect you. Help us to see the world filled with mirrors and to go out and to lift up, not to pull down, not to threaten, but to lift up in your name. Amen.